0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. In this week's episode, Quillette Editor-in-Chief Claire Lehman is going to tackle the subject of shame, a complex emotion that, on one hand, eats at our individual soul, yet, in large societies, can be a necessary agent to ensure people abide by fundamental norms. Many of us associate shame with religion, Yet, some of the most intense shaming campaigns we now see are conducted by secular liberals who seek to cast disgrace on ideological heretics. Claire's guest on today's episode is Tanvir Ahmed, a Bangladeshi-born Australian psychiatrist and journalist whose new book is entitled In Defense of Shame. In it, he tries to tease out a middle path for shame's role in our society. Can we harness its moral power to make our society better? while at the same time avoiding shaming spectacles and a paralyzing sense of disgrace? Find out as Claire interviews her fellow Australian, Dr. Tanvir Ahmed, on this week's Quillette podcast.
0: Your new book is called In Defence of Shame, Why We Need Negative Emotions. Why do we need shame?
2: Look, I think shame's a fascinating way to think about a range of things. Now, the most obvious one is groups. As humans, we're the only animal that have self-conscious emotions and they include guilt, humiliation, shame. And shame is arguably at the Christian origin story. So we think of the Adam-Eve story. Mm. So there's something very fundamental about Mm. shame and its relationship with humans and how we interact with each other. So I find shame especially interesting because it tells us about our relationship to groups. Yes, It tells us about our relationship to a moral language, mm-hmm. but it also tells us a little bit about how we view primitive emotions. And by that, I mean things like anger, aggression, or disgust. Yeah. So our part of our relationship to shame also tells us a little bit about our relationship to the primitive. And this is quite important. As a psychiatrist, I mean, we often hear the term mental health, and I like to tell people that it's really three different disciplines. One is neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, your readers will be especially sophisticated there just regarding human biology, hormones, neurotransmitters. The idea is that our emotional state behaviour, a great deal of it is chemistry. Another aspect of mental health is behaviourism. This is what psychologists do, what we call cognitive behavioural therapy, that thoughts lead to emotions rewards and punishments, that sort of relationship. All of that is very much related to conscious thought. And then historically, there's also that notion of psychoanalysis, which is more about that we're, we're primitive beings, we're kind of animals, we have instincts, uh, aggression, impulses. And that is essentially, if not control, but we have to moderate all that in this idea of society. We're uniquely social beings mm. as well. We have all these repressions to some extent, And a lot of mental health is the interaction of those two. And shame traditionally comes from that field. So looking at psychoanalysis, looking at where these primitive emotions come from.
0: I suppose evolutionary psychologists would look at negative emotions and say or hypothesise that they have some adaptive function. Would it be correct to say that If an individual has done something that transgresses a group norm, a social norm, and they feel ashamed for it, could that be useful or adaptive in some context?
2: So it's key usefulness historically has been to codify appropriate behaviour. Mm-hmm. Probably when it first began, say, in the biblical story, it was very much about what we considered unacceptable or primitive. Yeah. So you know, Freud refers to the pudenda, so essentially the genitals. So it began in, in nudity and the genitals. So that's what we're, we, were, we, we saw as primitive and unacceptable and, and what we were ashamed of. But as we became more complex societies, the notion of shame expanded. So for much of human history, particularly Western societies, it was mainly about sexuality. Uh, it expanded to things like treason in other societies, maybe more hierarchical societies like, say, India, China. It was often about status groups and maintaining hierarchies. And more recently, I think mm. in modern times, it's very interesting to see how the nature of shames changed away from sexuality. So, actually, yeah. shame associated with sex- sexuality is quite rare now. So, you're far more likely to get it in other forms. You know, mm. uh, yeah, the left might do it related to political correctness, the right might do it to welfare fraud. Public health advocates might do it around obesity or, or smokers. And we're in a very interesting time now. We're in a rare time in Western multicultural societies where we actually almost have a collective public health morality. We haven't had a time like this where pandemic shaming and a shared morality hasn't been the case for some time in such a diverse society. And that's one of the ideas that shame isn't terribly, isn't necessarily as useful as it may have been in past societies mm. because we're so diverse and we're also relatively anonymous. We live in these sort of privatised suburbia. That's where part of the view came that shame was not only that useful, but there was also a view quite specific to Western societies that shame hurt individual dignity. And with the Enlightenment, Ultimately, the concept in the individual is very specific to Western societies, and I think that's one of its great powers. Mm. But with that, what happened was that the idea of shame got stigmatised, effectively. So we're ashamed of shame, that's what I like to say. So on one level, you know, in terms of the broad political dates of collectivism versus individualism, you could argue shame versus guilt encapsulates that at an internal level in terms of encapsulating what is the right balance of the collective versus the individual?
0: So shame is an internal emotion that we experience. It's an internal negative emotion. But we also perform shame in groups when we shame people online, on Twitter, or hundreds of years ago, we may have pelted people in the stocks with rotten tomatoes. So there's two aspects of the emotion when we feel it ourselves, and then when we subject other people to shame.
2: That's right. It can work both ways. So shame implies an audience, Yeah. unlike guilt. So the idea of guilt is that we've absorbed certain values and we can feel it privately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and traditionally, our society viewed that as superior, and, and, and in some respects it is. So shame implies an audience. The other difference about shame, what in psychology is called a global attribution, okay. so compared to a specific one. So guilt implies that there's a particular act that I'm upset about. Mm -hmm. Whereas shame implies something more pertaining to the self. And that, again, that has positives and negatives. And you are right, because of that audience facing nature, it's something that can be done to you as well. And you're obviously alluding to the online component and the growth in that. And I think that's Part of the reason why this topic has become particularly interesting for a lot of people in recent decades, and probably one of the most renowned researchers, Brené Brown, who's sometimes called America's therapist these days, she looked at it in a very specific way, looking at it, women who often felt they didn't meet certain internal expectations.
0: Right.
2: And rather than feel guilt, they increasingly felt shame. Okay. And I touch on this too, and I think this is interesting, and this touches on we probably live in a society that's valued self-fulfillment mm. in a more aggressive way than ever before, right. and likewise we live in a media-rich meritocracy. Mm. So suddenly acts that might, might have been in the past been given specific attributions, as a general tendency, we're a lot more likely to give global attributions because we didn't bake the cake right or, <laughs> or whatever it might be. Yeah. There's, there's almost an added pressure there.
0: Are there gender differences? Do women feel shame more than men?
2: It's a bit, a bit stereotypical, but as a general rule in mental health, there is that view where women are more likely to internalise. Right. So in that respect, I think to some extent women are more likely to feel shame mm. and with round expectations, etc. The way shame is used, I think, is also interesting. So historically, again, often related to sexuality and more likely to be women. Mm. So I think that's in in one respect overlaps with gender politics, where increasingly this idea of toxic shame is often linked to masculinity. Okay. And it's often linked to things like domestic violence, etc. cetera, that toxic shame is a contributor where, people, where men play it out externally and externalise their sense of shame and humiliation. And it's another example how traditionally in our society, criminologists and psychologists have generally seen shame as something very negative and leading to all this psychopathology. And mm. again, that is possible. Mm. One of the main arguments I make is that there is healthy and unhealthy shaming. Right. And healthy shaming is where there is a brief period of stigma, Mm -hmm. but then there is a ritual of reintegration incorporated within the shaming. Okay. So a great example sometimes I use is group therapy, Mm -hmm. be it an addiction or dieting. And most people wouldn't necessarily see that as shaming, I guess more accountability, but its roots are in shaming because there's an audience, there's a kind of component of confession- There is a brief period of stigma, but then immediately there's a ritual of reintegration.
0: Yeah, because in in Alcoholics Anonymous, you stand up and you say, I'm Claire, or I'm Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. You're right. It is a bit of a ritual performance of of shame, but it's mild.
2: Exactly. And arguably, that's what shame should be, unless there's particular acts that are especially catastrophic. But I think my point in general, there should always be a ritual of reintegration associated with Mm -hmm. it, whatever, whatever it is. And that may not be that instant. Mm. Uh, I think when some actions are catastrophic, so for example, right now we're seeing you know, some people you know, step over the line in, in quite terrible ways regarding, say, public health needs or hygiene and social distancing and where that potentially endangers a lot of people. I think we're almost trying to reintegrate a whole set of new behaviours. So I actually think in, in such an instance, pandemic shaming can be quite useful. Again, as long as we don't strip people of dignity and that, that's a tough balance.
1: And now a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, the online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At BetterHelp.com, you'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment using secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists. And you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 U.S. states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. There's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over 1 million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp, that's H E-L P dot com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code QUILLETTE. Just go to betterhelp.com/slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast.
2: Now, another thing I want to touch in there, Claire, and I think this is something that's changed in more recently, probably only in the last couple of decades, and you touch it on in the title, Why We Need Negative Emotions, I think in the last half century, we've seen a huge burst of positivity, if you like, the positive movement. And I argue, when you look at the history of this, it came partly from Maslow, Maslow, who, who obviously coined the Hierarchy of Needs. Yeah. And when you read what he wrote about, interestingly, his early ideas were, to to a big extent, a reaction to the Holocaust. And he talks about how this was a real, and nobody would argue with that, this was a real bottom of the mill in terms of humanity. So he almost saw it as a reaction, that man could be much sunnier and that we could have this greater component. He began that in a very academic, technical way. But I think over the last half century, we've had these movements of expressive individualism, if you like, but social and economic, yep. but in parallel we've had this big movement of positivity, mm-hmm. of positive emotions, mm. and a lot of good things have come from that, be it the concepts like flow. You know, I think sometimes the gratitude rituals can seem a bit silly, but that touches on how we adapt so yep. quickly, subjective mm-hmm. well-being. There's lots of good things there. But arguably, I argue that a half century of that has steadily stigmatised what we may call now negative emotions, but they're not negative emotions. They're just human emotions, what we might have considered primitive. Mm. um, And again, it goes back to the pudenda or what we consider unacceptable. Mm. So increasingly, we're seeing emotions like aggression, disgust, shame. And I see this in my work, but a great example is self-harm, right? Right. Self-harm, for those of us who work in self-harm, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, school counsellors, teachers... It's very interesting when you take histories and a real common theme is that an inability to tolerate negative emotions. Yes. Now, that often comes developmentally. So they might have come through some sort of trauma or a family environment. So there's no way I'm suggesting the culture is the primary con- one and only contributor. Yes. But I definitely think one of the, there's no question there's been a growth in self-harm in recent decades, particularly the last two decades. Mm. And it's largely specific to Western prosperous nations. Mm. And I can't help think one aspect of the culture is our uh, inability to tolerate negative emotions. Mm. And I I think that filters across to kids and others. And I think it's poor mental health, not just poor mental health, just poor human flourishing more generally.
0: Well, the fourth wave of CBT, acceptance and commitment therapy, is emphasizes willingness to experience negative emotions so that we know that the self-esteem movement potentially has led to an epidemic of narcissism. We know that the, the hyper-focused individual movements of the 60s and 70s have sort of run their course. And I think it's becoming more accepted within psychology and the general self-help literature that negative emotions are here with us. They're here to stay. And if we want to live a fulfilled and satisfying life, we have to have the courage to experience those negative emotions. And I suppose what I would ask you in your practice, do you find that when people are able to experience negative emotions more willingly or with more courage that they get over them or they pass through quickly, whereas if they try and avoid the negative emotions, they get stuck.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. No question. This is almost, again, the internal facing component of where a half century of some of these ideas are sort of, you know, kind of hitting a roadblock now. Yeah. And my, the title of my, my book is, is sort of in keeping with that, because yeah. I'm arguing we've almost given up on shame for a period of history, but we actually kind of need it. We've just got to work out how we use it in the uh, healthiest possible ways.
0: On the individual level, you're saying that if a person avoids dealing with or even experiencing or tolerating negative emotions such as shame, that can lead to even more negative emotions that are crippling and and leading to behaviours such as self-harm. But likewise, at the societal level, if we don't accept that shame is part of the human experience, then we get these weird outgrowths of shaming culture, like cancel culture and online shaming and Twitter bullying. So would you say there's a parallel?
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's where the, the other area of shame I was alluding to, Claire, was how it also overlaps with a moral language. Mm-hmm. And I think to some extent we're going through a period where we're morally inarticulate, but yeah. we're yearning for it. So we had yeah. the decline of, say, a religious language. And arguably my field is is partly to blame because we've been so successful in almost colonising how people think of the human experience, yeah. I think, like yeah. a medicalized, psychiatric psychological language yeah. has arguably colonised the way people talk about their experiences. So shame is an example of a word that carries a moral connotation yeah. that again, we're, we're less comfortable about using, mm. yet it's an inevitable part of the way people experience emotions and, and poor mental health.
0: Yeah, it's true that psychiatry or psychology has invaded the space of morality. I see online younger in their late teens or early 20s, you know, they put their their mental health diagnoses in their Facebook profile or their Twitter profile like it's something to be proud of. I wonder if you've heard the term victimhood culture coined by two sociologists in the United States. They talk about American culture shifting away from a dignity culture where dignity was the main virtue to victimhood now being currency.
2: Absolutely. I think now the kind of expression of pain gives status, right? Yeah. I'd argue we've almost had a medicalization of dignity. Okay. So now dignity equals free from psychological harm. Okay. And and it, and it applies to specific groups deemed marginalized. Mm-hmm. So you're right, you get this competition for who's in the most psychological or potential psychological pain. And I think that's a, that's a huge problem. And, and again, this, this definitely relates to my field, whereas often I see now psychiatrists, psychologists, you'll have the American Psychological Association coming into these political debates saying, oh, we can't do this. In Australia, it was a good example was the gay marriage debate. Mm. And we had medical and psychological groups that so we can't have this debate yep. because it can cause psychological harm to gays. Mm-hmm. So really, that's a good example of how we've changed the notion of dignity to psychological harm. Right. And suddenly now, and, and, and it really impinges on those ideas of freedom, because mm. if, if you go back to the old you know, John Stuart Mill idea that you can be free as long as you don't cause harm, not in a million years would you have envisaged that it suddenly means psychological harm. Sure. So this is where you've had a real sh- shift in uh, some of these debates, say racism, feminism, you know, away from the civic sphere, to this psychological, and not even the psychological, perceptions of psychological harm. So that's a big shift.
0: And you point out in your book that this is all fraught because in multicultural societies we don't have shared moral norms necessarily. We might have a mainstream moral culture, but then there are pockets of other moral cultures. So how do we share in the rituals that acknowledge a person has done something shameful should be shamed but then should be reintegrated back into society. We don't have those shared rituals.
2: I think that is a big challenge. I mean, that's one of the big challenges of, of Western society where, mm. you know, you take out nationalism, you, you take out religious rituals. It is hard to have those shared rituals, certainly on a mass scale. And you allude to multicultural. One of the big areas I see it, and Australia might be different to other places here because we have one of the most segregated school cultures because right. uh, we have so many different schools. We've got private schools, independent schools, Catholic schools, public schools, and quite that would be quite different to a place like Canada and, to some extent, uh, Great Britain. And I often find one of the big reasons a lot of ethnic groups shift schools away from the public system is partly because they, there is too much emphasis on, say, the self-esteem movement or or not putting too much pressure on kids, and it is different ideas, essentially, of how, how much kids can be pushed, but partly it's different ideas about this point of positivity, Because I think in many areas of our uh, society now, be it crime and punishment, be it schooling, be it uh, corporate life, a host of different areas, certainly in mental health, Mm. we've acquired this idea that uh, you can only have carrots.
0: Yes, right. Whereas
2: so much evidence... Addiction is a great point. In addiction, the best evidence for uh, improvement are in pilots and doctors who are on strict programs where they're getting urine testing. There's there's a punitive component... Mm. And they also have the reward of being able to go back to work, right? It's a specific example, but it shows that in so many different areas of life, carrots and sticks uh, work, right? Not just carrots. Not just carrots. Whereas I think in combination with our movements around positivity, Mm. we've become too uh, allured Mm. by a kind of carrot-specific kind of philosophy in so many areas of our life, Mm. uh, so many areas of our society, that I think it's actually causing damage.
0: And causing damage in terms of people becoming more anxious and depressed, potentially?
2: Certainly, that's one point. But I also say in education, I think sometimes where, you know, often kids aren't adequately ready for the real world. You know, I'll give you an example in uh, my work where I spend a good deal, probably every month I would write at least four or five forms for kids about to sit their final exams and their disability provisions because they have some sort of anxiety disorder. Mm. Now, that is most prominent in the most... Uh, At most uh, privileged schools,
0: right?
2: So one of the probably the most one of the most privileged schools in Sydney, for example, mm-hmm. has almost like a quarter of the year on disability provisions. Amazing. I won't name the school, yeah. but it's just a pointer that increasingly we have a generation where under pre- they're not even prepared yep. to be under pressure, right. Because we have a culture that thinks that will cause psychological harm.
0: Well, that's the coddling culture. That's the Jonathan Hyde. That's, right.
2: that's exactly Greg right, Greg
0: Lukianoff and Weary. i think that
2: overlaps with things like the positivity movement yeah. and and seeing any type of negative emotion like shame
0: as traumatic
2: exactly that's out, mm. that, that nothing good can come from that mm. like mm. it's only negative it can only strip people of dignity mm. rather than seeing that that can be a path to to yeah. to better behavior better mental health you know better a range of things
1: it's time for a short message from blinkist if you're the type of person who reads quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But, like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read, or listen to, expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog, and you'll find all sorts of big brain books, like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Ewell Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention The Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and, of course, Twelve Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast.
0: Well, how do we focus more as a culture or society on finding the sweet spot? Because obviously too much shame is not ideal. Mm. Uh, Too little shame, likewise, is not ideal. There's got to be some middle path I mean, we used to have concepts of balance. How come we've lost that in our modern culture?
2: Look, I think we're we're going through a phase. You alluded to half century of sort of say you know, liberalism. You say so now we're looking for we're all yearning for groups in a form. So we're trying to find that right balance. Mm. So it's immediately when we feel shame, it's really a signal that we're looking for a group.
1: Really? Now sometimes
2: that's an imagined group, mm. especially with online sort of social media. And one of the points I make, that in a media-rich meritocracy, sometimes the notion of shame... Historically, shame has been about feeling like you haven't done your duty, whereas increasingly it can be about feeling unlovable, Mm -hmm. that you haven't adequately achieved. But I think that earlier point I made regarding immediately considering considering a ritual of reintegration is a critical aspect. Mm. But that obviously depends on identifying... group that you're part of. So we were talking about, say, online cancel culture. I mean, how can we bring that that sort of routine into that? Uh, And and it'd be great to think of ways that it could become an automatic part of that. And I I think institutions need to think heavily about this, because I think that's where a lot of the damage is happening here, where institutions are kind of caving in and not immediately considering how do we reintegrate uh, people that may have been shamed, that we might be getting pressure. I mean, in terms of, you know, how to find the sweet spot, what I'm arguing is that we need to embrace a more moral language. Okay. Not 100%. What yep. you're alluding to about people almost uh, celebrating their diagnosis is partly, say, half a century, we would describe people in terms of character, mm. right? Whereas increasingly we would refer to themselves in personality. So it's a good example of how we've been stripped of any moral language. And again, I think part of that is healthy. Um, but I think we should be immediately thinking of how do we better describe our experience away from that medicalization or that yeah. strictly medicalization? Yeah. a better appreciation of what we call negative emotions, mm. a, a recognition that almost all cultures have a component of shame. And, again, Western civilization has been mm. uniquely successful with the focus on the individual. Mm. But, and, arguably, we are the best placed. I often find that someone who grew up someone from a Bangladeshi Muslim background and i grew up in a very collectivist honor shame honor type culture and i would have looked down upon that growing up but in some ways even my own life i feel like i'm i it's almost finding the sweet spot there yeah, yeah. as i've had to embrace the kind of more individualist mores of, of wider society mm. in part of part of my life i've almost been trying to find the sweet spot between yeah. kind of a group facing uh, conformity almost yes. with a more you know go out and uh, do what you feel like in terms of individual desire. Mm. Um, so, look, it's, not, it's certainly not something we've uh, adequately solved. I think, look, Francis Fukuyama wrote a book about identity politics where he talks about this, that liberalism, modern liberalism doesn't know what to do with groups. So it's left a space for, say, identity politics, et yep. But I, st- I do still think that's, that's still a core issue, where people still yearn for some type of collective identity, an element of a belief system, Yes. uh you know some and we, we have to set limits to that because that could be very dangerous but that's still one of the crises if you like mm. of, of Western societies
0: and I suppose when you see clients in your practice having the vocabulary to talk about negative emotions and to talk about a yearning for being part of a community or a group that's probably not there
2: that's half of it yeah I think that's what I'm alluding to very much that that uh, it begins with the internal in yes. some ways. So mm. if we're better able to speak about our internal experience, mm. we've got a much better chance of, I guess, forming healthier groups yeah. uh, and forming sort of better affiliations and, and uh, you know not stripping people mm. down or seeking retribution. At the moment, current public shaming is entirely about retribution. And I know some people, even researching this book, speaking to some religious leaders, they sort of raise the prospect that, well increasingly without a, a kind of concept of sin and forgiveness mm. both guilt and shame are actually in danger so guilt to some extent depends upon um, having this idea of sin and forgiveness that yeah. kind of thing and and e- even shame uh, shame without a sense of forgi- without a sense of forgiveness is just entirely retribution
0: yeah
2: so it does it lacks any sense of that of scale or proportion, or reintegration.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the main issues with contemporary cancel culture. I mean, we have proportionality in the criminal justice system. A violent crime sits on a spectrum. There's murder at one end, and then there's a minor assault on the other end, and a person doesn't go to jail for the same amount of time. It's very Um,
2: black and white in mm, cancel, yeah.
0: Yeah, so we've got these online mobs who don't seem to be able to dish out proportional justice according to the crime committed or the sin committed. And it feels like our language has just become flattened.
2: We think we're a guilt-based culture. I'm arguing that we've got a lot more shame-based than we think. Yes. And I think increasingly now, what I find very interesting is seeing patients who, and obviously you, you see them as individuals, but the, everyone, most people in their head exist in some kind of group. Right. But often it's an imagined group. Yeah, so And increasingly, it's, social media is a big part of that. Yeah. So people have all these... People have audiences in their head, whether they're real or imagined. Yeah. And that's why people often do feel shame, even whether they can name it as that. Right. So uh, one of the more provocative points I'm making is I'm not convinced that we're as much of a guilt-based culture as we'd like to think we are.
0: But what is the difference between guilt and shame? Because I would have thought there's a lot of overlap.
2: There's definitely overlap. I mean, in fact, many languages don't have a separate word for guilt. Okay. But I guess it, it's that idea that shame has an audience right. and it's that notion of a global attribution, that it's yep. more about the self. Yes. Whereas guilt is, I'm sorry, I parked in the wrong place. Whereas the shame would be, I'm, it's terrible that I parked in this place, I'm a terrible person. Okay. And... There's people around you letting you know. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay.
0: I see. I see the difference. Now, is there any modern therapy that deals adequately with shame or have we just swept it under the rug?
2: No, there's definitely people looking into this. Yeah, there's it. Interestingly, I think a lot of the work done is often in a criminal justice sort of system. In fact, one of the world experts is an Australian. His name's, I think it's John Braithwaite. I was about to say Daryl Braithwaite, he's a famous singer, but no, he's John Braithwaite in Canberra and he's been doing work on this for years and he's, he's been quite influential in the United States in particular, particularly in the South. Uh, there are some famous judges that quote his work. Right. So criminal justice, it's, it's certainly there. Yeah. I guess, I mean, some forms of group therapy have components of that. Arguably, again, in more collectivist cultures, some of the traditional rituals sometimes, for example, I've had patients go off and do, you know, African rituals or something like this, and sometimes when you, when you hear about what's happening, it, they're, it, they're often shame-based therapies in a way, wow. where they're you know, facing the family, there'll be some sort of ritual, yeah. and they'll, you know, they'll be, they, they may, not, not necessarily confession, but there's some sort of atonement that they're seeking, yeah. right? And so I would say there's roots of that in some of the more traditional collective rituals historically. And it, it would be very interesting thinking about how can we incorporate that into modern psychological therapies.
0: I suppose another way of thinking about shame and how it might be useful or adaptive is in the context of serious criminals, I would imagine that psychopaths don't feel any shame. And so perhaps it points to the fact that shame in small doses or in moderate doses is is a healthy emotion because the people who don't feel any shame are the very serious criminal offenders.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point. It shows that we're, we're social group-facing animals, and a psychopath is, is psychopathology. Mm. And so it's, we need to feel shame, otherwise mm. it's impossible for us to form social connections to some degree.
0: Yeah. It's like a social conscience in a way.
2: Absolutely. There's obviously mm. dangers in that, but yes, um, uh, it, it's definitely it's a very powerful self-conscious emotion. Uh, Salman Rushdie has a quote. You go, Dear reader, uh, shame is not the sole property of the East. It's a good example of how we've traditionally, a lot of shame researchers argue that it's been part of kind of Western notions of superiority that we've bypassed. We've right. moved on from shame.
0: Yes. But now we're at a point where we don't even have the language to describe it and then we avoid experiencing it when we do have it and then it's coming up, bubbling up in all of these other toxic ways such as online shaming culture and self-harm in young people. So, exactly, you know, we've got a lot to learn. We
2: need to learn how to harness it. Yes. It's there. It's always been there. Yeah. We've pretended uh, it doesn't exist or we've superseded it, mm. but it can be used healthily. Yes. I think it's really important we work out how.
0: Thank you very much for joining us, Tanvir. Dr Tanvir Ahmed is a psychiatrist, author and columnist for the Australian Financial Review. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales. His new book, In Defence of Shame, is published by Conor Publishing and is now available on Amazon.com. That's In Defence of Shame, published by Conor Publishing. Thanks again, Tanvir.